Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this morning we got the Labor Department's release of the highly anticipated April non-farm payrolls number, the jobs report. Very important report because this is the first official jobs report of the second quarter, more importantly, of the springtime because we had a very weak report in March and a lot of other negative economic indicators. So everybody is hopeful that we're going to get this rebound in the springtime. And we got some news earlier in the week that might have suggested that that was not going to be the case, because on Wednesday we got the ADP private payrolls number that came out, and that was way below expectations. Analysts were looking for 205,000 jobs. Instead, we got just 169,000 jobs. Also, the month of March, which was originally reported at 189,000, which in itself was below estimates, they revised that down to just 175,000. But of course, April's 169,000 is lower than March's 175,000, indicating the labor market is getting softer not firming up. And of course, beneath the surface, it was worse because we lost 10,000 manufacturing jobs. And of course, those 10,000 manufacturing jobs probably paid a lot more than the service sector jobs that took their place. Also, what should have been a little scary was the challenger job cuts numbers that came out yesterday. This is for the month of uh, April, announced job cuts, 61,582 well above the number that was reported the previous month, almost double. It was the biggest spike in announced layoffs in one month in three years. And year over year, April, it was the biggest year over year increase in 10 years in announced layoffs. So given that, uh, some people might have thought that we were going to get a disappointing number. The consensus was 220,000 and for the unemployment rate to be 5.4. Those are the two numbers that everybody looks at. How many jobs did we create and what was the unemployment rate? 
We got the number, 223,000 jobs, unemployment down to 5.4. Everything is great. That's how the media is spinning this. Watching CNBC this morning, it's a Goldilocks report. Right? All they look at is the headline number. Right? They're falling for a magician's trick. That's what the government does. They distract you uh, by giving you one number that you could look at, and they hope you don't notice everything that's going on with you know, the other hand. Right? That's what's happening here. Because if you look beneath a very thin superficial layer, just scratch your little pinky, uh, what you reveal is a very ugly picture when it comes to the April jobs report. But nobody wants to do that. Either they don't want to bother or they're afraid of what they might see. But we are going to peel uh, back that onion right here and talk about the details, starting with what should be very obvious, the downward revision to March. You know, March's bad number originally was 126,000, which was well below the 200 plus thousand that they were looking for. And a lot of people were expecting an upward revision to that number. Instead, they revised it down by 41,000 jobs. Now, only 85,000 jobs were created in March. In fact, that is the weakest jobs number in three years. Three years, weaker than anything last year in the middle of the polar vortex. Now, if you average March and April, you're way below consensus for the average of the two months. But of course, why are people so excited about the 223 when it could be revised downward next month? Just like the 126 was revised down to 85. Given the ADP number, given all the layoffs just announced, there's a pretty good chance the government's wrong again. So why get excited about a number that can easily be changed? In fact, I think the stock market recognizes this. I mean, as I'm talking, the Dow is up better than 260. The Nasdaq is up better than 60, back above 5,000. I think the market is sensing uh, that this means that the Fed is on pause, which of course it is, because this really isn't a good number, regardless of the way people want to spin it. But you know, it even gets worse as you continue to dig uh, beneath the surface. Let me get into some of the details that are not really being reported. Average hourly earnings is, right? They are mentioning this, and it was bad. They were looking for a 0.2% increase. Instead, the increase was half as much, 0.1. And again, they went back to the March number, where they originally said that hours work went up by 0.3, and now they said, well, we were wrong. It only went up by 0.2. So earnings are not going up. Also, the number of Americans who have left the labor force is now at a record high. In April, there were 93,149,000 people no longer in the labor force. That is a new record high. But if you recall the podcast I made on Tuesday, I thought that we were going to get a weaker than expected number. And that was before I had the benefit of the ADP number on Wednesday, uh, the challenger layoffs yesterday. I just thought based on all the other data and based on the fact that I knew QE didn't work, that we would get a weak jobs number. But I said that it might not happen because of the wild card of all the part-time workers, right? Because when employers are changing the nature of their workforce, when they're replacing full-time workers with part-time workers, it distorts the net number of jobs. Because when each person is working fewer hours, you need more people. And so that's screwing up the whole you know, non-farm job number. And that is exactly what happened in this number. Because if you look at the household survey, 
it tells you the breakdown between full-time and part-time. The government number, the establishment, they don't do that. They just say, here's how many jobs were created. They make no distinction between full-time, part-time, jobs a job, right? Uh, you know, if you have a, whether it's a job where you work full-time as an engineer, you get $100,000 a year in benefits, or if you work part-time at McDonald's cooking French fries with no benefits at minimum wage, jobs a job as far as uh, the government's concerned. Looking at the, um, the uh, household survey, we created 437,000 part-time jobs in April. That is the biggest gain in part-time employment since June of last year. Now, at the same time, the number of full-time jobs, real jobs, declined by 252,000. That's the biggest job of the year. Now, instead of talking about the 233,000 jobs that were created, why don't we talk about the 252,000 full-time jobs that were destroyed? Now, the reason we don't know that they were destroyed is because they're buried beneath a superficial layer of part-time jobs that obscure it, right? That's what you get on the surface. Oh, you know, we've got 437,000 part-time jobs that are masking the 252,000 full-time jobs that went bye-bye, right? And more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but certainly equally importantly or disturbing, is the demographic breakdown. Workers age 55 and older, they gain 266,000 jobs in April. On the other hand, workers 25 to 54, they lost 19,000 jobs. Now, you know, again, this blows another hole as if they needed any more in this theory that the reason that the labor force participation rate, which is holding steady near the lowest level since uh, the 1970s, the idea that it's going down because of the retiring baby boom. If that were the case, then you would see the number of older workers going down, not up. It's the people who should be retiring that are being forced to take these part-time jobs because that's the only way they can pay their electric bills or put food on the table. It's the younger workers who are leaving the labor force in droves. They're the ones who can't find jobs. You know, So it's, it's not what Janet Yellen is saying. And I got into the same argument with Gene Sperling on my panel here at SALT. He brought up that nonsense when uh, the, 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 the idea or the topic of labor force participation came up. He said, well, you know, this trend has been going on in law for a long time. It's the baby boom retiring, and so they're leaving the labor force. That's not what's happening. Older people are working in record numbers. Why do people refuse to acknowledge this? It's the younger people who need to be working. They can't get jobs. It's the older people who should be retiring that are coming back into the workforce. So, uh, there's more bad news coming out. This was a lousy report. I don't care how they want to spin it. And the worst part about it is it wasn't the only bad news that came out on the day because we got the wholesale trade numbers, which were horrible. And this also is going to take away further uh, from the second quarter, first quarter GDP, which is already now going to be in the negative territory. It's just going to be a bigger negative number. Uh, the inventories were supposed to rise by 0.3. And instead, they rose by 0.1, one-third of what was expected. In fact, it was the smallest gain in inventory since March of 2013. And both of these lower numbers are going to detract from the revised estimates for the first quarter GDP. More disturbing than that was wholesale sales. They were supposed to rise because we had a three-month-in-a-row losing streak, and we were supposed to break it 
in March. Instead, we added to the record. Now it's four months in a row. And in fact, if you look at the year-over-year decline, it's the biggest since November of 2008. Now, what was going on in November 2008? Do you remember? Oh, Lehman Brothers collapsing, the beginning of the financial crisis, the market imploding, TARP, all hell was breaking loose. Uh, It was going to be Armageddon, another Great Depression. That's where you have to go. You have to go back to that time period in that environment to find a year-over-year decline in wholesale sales as big as the one that we just got. Or this does, does this seem like an economy that's finally reached escape velocity? that we really should be arguing whether or not a data-dependent Fed is going to raise rates in June or September. I mean, if the Fed really were were basing its decision on the data, the data stinks. The data is so much worse now than it was in the past. If the Fed couldn't raise interest rates when the economy was much stronger last year, then how could they raise rates now when the economy is far weaker than it's been in years? You know, we got more bad news earlier in the week on productivity, right? And it wasn't necessarily unexpected bad news, but it just shows you what's going on. We got the uh, first quarter productivity numbers down 1.9%. And that was in line with estimates, but it followed the 2.1% decline in the fourth quarter last year. So it's average 2% a quarter is the rate at which productivity is falling in the United States. The last time we had back-to-back quarterly declines was in uh, 2006. And that was a much smaller decline than the one we got now. To find a decline that's close to the one we just had, and the second most recent one, you have to go back to 1996. So the productivity is uh, falling, and labor costs, unit labor costs are rising. They rose more than expected. They were supposed to go up 4.6%. They went up 5%, and they revised the prior quarter from up 4.1 to up 4.2. Now, we know wages aren't going up. Wages are stagnant. So if it's cost employers more money to hire people, but the employees aren't getting more money. So it means businesses are really in trouble. They're, they're experiencing increase in their cost of hiring people, but the workers aren't getting more money. What do they have to do? Falling productivity, increased employment costs. The answer is simple. Lay people off. So we're going to get more layoffs. The challenger numbers show a big explosion in layoffs. So you've got all this negative news staring you in the face, yet the media looks at this as if everything is okay. The reality is the the economy is weakening, and it's weakening rapidly, and the markets and the, the pundits and the economists and the Federal Reserve doesn't want to acknowledge the obvious because they're afraid of the way the markets might react to it. Now, speaking about a clueless Federal Reserve, I happened to have an encounter the other day with former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. Many of you may have seen the picture of me and the former chairman. Uh, We were at a cocktail party, and I posted that picture up on my Facebook page. And if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, go and friend me and you can check out the photograph of, uh, of me and the former Fed chairman. And many of you want to know the backstory on that and, you know, what happened between me and Ben Bernanke. Well, you know, not much actually, but I'll give you uh, all of the details. So first of all, Ben Bernanke uh, was there to speak at the SALT conference. He was one of the key speakers he was paid, I believe, somewhere between two hundred and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to basically hit the softballs 
that were lobbed to him from Anthony Scaramucci, who is the host of this conference and who was very flattering of Ben Bernanke, uh, thanking him for his service and labeling him a hero and the savior of our country. Of course, I strongly disagree with that characterization. Of course, the biggest um, uh, booster uh, of uh, Ben Bernanke is Ben Bernanke himself. He will tell you how, you know, what a great job he did. So, you know, he will certainly praise himself uh, and, you know, expect uh, others to do the same thing. So he was there, Q&A, on the stage, uh, real easy questions. Right. And of course, he was able to handle them. And you, you expect at least make the guy work, do something for two hundred thousand dollars. Let me question him. Uh, but in any event, he probably wouldn't agree to that. I mean, it's probably not even worth it. But in any event, I was watching from the speaker's lounge because I did want to meet him, because when you leave the stage, you have to leave through a certain way and you go right through the speaker's lounge. And so I wanted to talk to Ben Bernanke. So I went in there so I could I could uh, get a chance to talk to him. So. He's, he walks out and he's accompanied by a secretary. He doesn't have like a big entourage or a bodyguard or anything. Just, a, you know, a, a lady uh, with him who's even, you know, he's relatively short and she's significantly shorter. And anyway, so I see him and I come right up to him and I say, Mr. Bernanke. And I put my hand out and I say, Peter Schiff. And I can sense from his body language and, I, you know, the way he looked that the name was familiar. So I think he knew something about me. But he didn't necessarily acknowledge it. I think he said something like, oh, sure, or something. But I was pretty sure he knew who I was at that point. But I wanted to make sure because I didn't want to have a conversation under false pretense. So the first thing I said to him, as I said, look, I got to let you know, you know, full disclosure, I'm probably your biggest critic. And to which Ben Bernanke replied, well, you got a lot of competition. And he's probably true. There is a lot of competition out there. There are a lot of people who do criticize uh, ben Bernanke, but I think I am his biggest critic. I mean, uh, I've been criticizing him for longer than most people, and I certainly uh, do it more often and, and more loudly. But anyway, after that brief exchange, I said, um, would, you have, would you have a moment to chat? I'd love to talk to you. And he said, no, I don't. I, I really got to go. And I said, all right, well, how about a quick picture then? Nope, no time. And he was gone. That was it. He was whisked away by his uh, female handler, and I thought, well, that was it. I'm not going to see that guy again. He was rushing to deposit his check, right? Um, so anyway, later in, the, in the, that evening, they have a cocktail party for the speakers. And so I get to the cocktail party. I walk in. And who do I see standing there all by himself but Ben Bernanke? Um, and so I got a drink and then went over to <laughs> Mr. Bernanke, who was still standing by himself, surprisingly. And I said... Mr. Bernanke, oh, you know, I thought you would, I thought you had to leave. And he said, no, I'm, I'm still here. And then he said, you know, I've got time for that picture now if, if you want to take one, which I thought was quite, quite uh, nice of him because he remembered that I wanted a photograph and that he didn't have time for it. And now he sees me and he asked me if I want to, you know, take a photograph. So I said, sure, let's have a photograph. And, you know, initially I was thinking, you know, what do I do to spice this photograph up? I mean, just a photo of me and Ben Bernanke. I mean, what's the big deal? I thought maybe I should do the rabbit ears behind his head. But I felt kind of awkward doing that considering he had so graciously reminded me that I wanted a photograph and offered uh, to pose with me. I, I, I felt, you know, that would be you know inappropriate for me to try to take advantage of him or make fun of him. So it was just a normal photograph. And, you know, by the way, when we posted that photograph on my Facebook page, 
it got initially over 130,000 views. I don't know how, how many likes we have. I, I got more likes on that photo than any photo of me and Ron Paul or Rand Paul or Jimmy Rogers or, uh, you know, any of the any of the other bears. And I don't know, you know, what is it that people like so much about the photo? I mean, is it the contrast of seeing the two of us together? I'm not really sure because most of the people who like me don't also like Ben Bernanke. Uh, so, but whatever, I mean, that, the photograph, uh, you know, certainly drew a lot of attention on my Facebook page. And again, go, go check it out. Friend me over there. Uh, if you're not a friend. So we got the photograph out of the way and then I, I wanted to talk to him. And so the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to give him kind of my version of why the economy is so screwed up and why everything he did was wrong. And, you know, the last thing he wanted to get was a lecture from me, but that's what I tried to give him. But I tried to give him the cliff note version because I did want to ask him some questions, but I wanted to get his reaction to my take. Right. And so, you know, I started talking about the housing bubble and the financial crisis and how the Federal Reserve caused that. Right. With its low interest rates. And he said to me, no, it wasn't that that the interest rates in the Fed had nothing to do with it. He first told me that the housing bubble was caused um, by. Uh, Fannie and Freddie. And and at least he's, you know, he's trying to blame the government. But I said, look, you know, Fannie and Freddie have been around since the 30s. Um, we didn't have that big housing bubble until the Fed happened to have interest rates at 1% and then, you know, raised them very slowly. That wasn't a coincidence, you know. And he said, well, you know, it was subprime mortgages that did it. And I said, oh, subprime mortgages? And I said, well, do you understand... Uh, you know, how subprime mortgages worked because they were all adjustable rates. And the most popular feature, what made them so enticing and affordable was the teaser rate, right? The fact that you can get a low rate of interest for the first few years, that was all because of the Fed. So I said, if you're going to blame subprime, you got to blame the Fed because the Fed is what gave life to subprime because it made subprime affordable. Yes, Fannie and Freddie were part of the problem. And, and, then he, and he also blamed regulation. Yeah, and in fact, he said regulation first before he said Fannie and Freddie. And I said, well, what regulations are you talking about? And he said Fannie and Freddie, which really weren't regulations. They're agencies. But he was really trying to lay the blame for the housing bubble not on, on, on capitalism because of subprime and on the government in a way because of Fannie and Freddie. But what I said is, well, wait a minute. If regulation and subprime and... Uh, Fannie and Freddie, if that's what caused the housing bubble, why didn't you warn us about that in advance? I mean, why didn't you go in 2004, hey, we got a problem. We got these bad regulations. We got Fannie and Freddie. We got subprime. They've created a housing bubble. This is going to be a disaster. He didn't say any of that. He said the opposite of that. In fact, when he was asked specifically about the housing bubble, he denied it existed. Well, if it was being caused by the things that he said, why didn't he warn about it? Because it wasn't caused by those things, right? Or because if it was, why didn't he know about it in advance? The reason I was warning about it in advance is because I understood that it was the policies of the Federal Reserve that created the housing bubble. Ben Bernanke had no clue that those policies had inflated a bubble, even after it burst. But now in hindsight, he wants to lay blame for the crisis on these other aspects. But if it were true... He should have been able to identify that in advance, not just in hindsight, but me or others like me that understood it was a bubble, knew what the cause was before it bursts, and we haven't changed our tune after it burst. But, you know, so I had that little bit of a discussion. And then 
I tried to ask him some questions and that's where, you know, he kind of really wanted to end the conversation. So the first question I said is, you know, Ben, um, or Mr. Bernanke, you know, you're so sure that, you know, that you're right. I didn't, you know, I don't know how you can be so sure because interest rates are still at zero and the Fed's balance sheet hasn't shrunk. Right. And, you know, you, you know, you, you said you weren't monetizing the debt when you talked to Congress. You said you were, they, the Fed was going to sell the bonds, but none of them have been sold. They've all been rolled over. So how are you claiming victory? Right. When, um, you know, you, you haven't exited, you haven't raised rates, you haven't shrunk the balance sheet. And I said, you know, you you were wrong in the past. You, you, you didn't see the financial crisis coming. You told us there was no housing bubble. You said subprime was contained. So you were certainly wrong then. So how do you know you're not wrong now? You know what? I mean, and is there anything that might change your opinion and, and get you to rethink and, and maybe admit that maybe your outlook is wrong? And, and I forget the exact words. I sent him some stuff. And instead of answering the question, he just kind of patted me on the on the shoulder, like on the upper part of my arm, and just kind of gave me a little smile. And then that was it. He kind of turned and, you know, by then there was a couple other people around us. So then he started talking to somebody else. And, you know, it was clear to me that he really didn't want to answer the questions. After all, you know, I'm not paying him $200,000, so why should he answer my questions? And, you know, and I don't know, you know, maybe he just didn't want to answer them. I didn't get the sense when I talked to him that he was lying to me. I mean, I, I thought he really, you know, believed what he believed. I mean, he seemed he seemed that way. And I'm sure like all the praise has gone to his head. Right. So he he you know, he thinks he saved the world. And um, so he, he did seem sincere. But, you know, he, he, he I, I, I guess, though, his lack of willingness. I mean, who am I, right? I'm just this guy that's trying to talk to the former Fed chairman and tell him what a lousy job he did. So he probably doesn't want to hear that. He wants to talk to somebody who's going to tell him how great he is. So that was kind of the last I talked to him. Uh, but later on that day, someone came up to me and, and, you know, and, you know, people were coming up to me all the time at this conference to shake my hand and tell me how much they enjoyed my talk. And of course, I was on a panel for 40 minutes and the first 10 minutes were, you know, were uh, Papandreas, the former um, prime minister of Greece, talking to Steve Forbes. So, you know, that was like the, a quarter of the panel. The highlight was me arguing with Gene Sperling. And that's where I got all my applause. Gene didn't get any. Right. He was the former economic advisor to uh, Ron Paul. I mean, to, uh, <laughs> to to President Obama. And, uh, you know, he got none of no applause. I got all the applause. I even got laughter, too. Of course, they weren't laughing at me because I was saying some funny things, funny because they were true. And it makes people laugh, you know, my typical style. So I got a lot of laughs and I got lots of applause in just maybe the five to seven minutes that I got to talk when I was on that panel. And, you know, even some of the newspapers who were reporting about it, who maybe are not too don't feel too kindly about me, had to acknowledge that at least I got applause. But people would come up to me and say, look, I really appreciate what you said. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, and, you know, these guys only got a small taste. I mean, they didn't hear the real Peter Schiff. There were some people that came to me. You know, I, I didn't, I've never heard of you. I mean, this is, I'm really, you know, I, I really like the way you think. You have courage of your conviction. You say what's on your mind. You don't mince words. You, you know, I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, I really, you know, like what you said. Uh, I mean, 50, 100 people come up to me uh, to say that. Many of them had never heard of me before, even though I spoke at this conference last year. But again, I was only part of a panel. I mean, I don't have my own speaking slot. 
like I would at the Money Show or the New Orleans Conference or Freedom Fest. I'm just I'm just a small guy on a panel. You know, they have their their big people here, you know, that they have to pay a lot of money to uh, to speak. I mean, they get a great deal for me because I don't charge. I just show up and I talk. I mean, they caught me my my room, but that's about it. I got to I got to even pay for my own for my own travel. But this guy comes up to me, you know, to to say some nice things to me. But then he said, you know, I was talking to Ben Bernanke and he was saying some bad things about you. So he's already talking smack behind my back. But, you know, it's I don't blame him. I mean, I, I got no problem with Ben Bernanke saying bad things about Peter Schiff because, look, I say bad things about him all the time. So what's fair is fair, right, if it's good for the goose. Um, you know, so he's got a right to criticize me uh, because, again, you know, I don't think there's much competition. You know, right. I, I, I think, um, you know, the Mayweather or maybe that's not a bad, bad. Uh, maybe that's a bad choice now, considering uh, uh, how. Uh, how uh, you know how what how disappointing uh, that that fight was. So maybe I'll go back. I'm the I'm the I'm the I'm the Rocky Marciano. Yeah, he was 49 and 0. I think I'm the heavyweight champ of Ben Bernanke critics. Although I'm not quite sure I'm a heavyweight. I'm not sure where the I think I'm I'm 180 or something like that. Uh, so I'm not sure what that what that makes me. Uh, but I think in the realm of Ben Bernanke critics, I'm not sure if I have any equals. I mean, there are some people up there, you know, uh, Mark Faber, he, he's very, I don't know, he's a very loud critic of Ben Bernanke, that's, that's for sure. But, you know, I've been doing it for a long, long time, and I've been very consistent in my criticism of Mr. Bernanke. And as I, I've said many times that I think Mr. Bernanke uh, did uh, uh, Alan Greenspan a favor by letting him out of jail or off the hook uh, of, with the title of worst Fed chairman ever. But maybe Janet Yellen will return the favor so that Ben Bernanke doesn't have to be the worst Fed chairman ever. Uh, that honor uh, could go to Janet Yellen. He, he might just be the worst male Fed chairman ever or the worst Fed chairman because she's a chairwoman, I suppose. And she's certainly the worst chairwoman ever, only chairwoman. Uh, but we'll see how much more damage Janet Yellen does because I think the real damage is yet to come. It's going to be when, when we get into QE4. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments and hedge funds were buying gold by the ton, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com. 